we visited Dachau with two other families on a trip to Europe a number of years ago. It is a sobering experience as you learn the stories of suffering in that Nazi concentration camp. Christian Rieger was a member of the Confessing Church in Germany and opposed Adolf Hitler, along with men like Martin Niemöller, who was also in prison at Dachau. The organist in his church betrayed him to the Nazis, and he spent four long years as a prisoner, personally witnessing many of the atrocities of the Holocaust. In the years after the war, Christian Rieger spent many hours at Dachau helping tourists understand the horror of that experience. So many people died one winter in the camp that their bodies were stacked naked in the snow with numbers stenciled on each with a blue marker. But Rieger was quick to point out that he experienced God's love in Dachau. He says, Nietzsche said, a man can undergo torture if he knows the why of life. But here in Dachau, I learned something far greater. I learned to know the who of my life. It was enough to sustain me then and is enough to sustain me still. When you are at the bottom of the pit, look up, my friends. You will find the who of life, and he alone can restore your broken world. Plead with God for his restoring grace. There are three possibilities for understanding God when we sit in the pit. First, God is sovereign but aloof. He is a spectator in human affairs. He could intervene but chooses to let us struggle on by ourselves. God is powerful but uncaring. Second, God is not sovereign, but he loves us in our pit. God cares, but God is powerless. God did not cause the pit, but he feels our pain. He empathizes with our circumstances, but he can do nothing about them other than offer consolation. Third, God is sovereign, and he can and will lift us from the pit. God superintends the pit. If God is sovereign, then we are in the pit by God's will. Now, if the first possibility is true, then I have no hope. I live in a cold world, and the pit has no purpose. If the second possibility is true, then I feel his love, but must work my own way out of the pit because God is a fellow pit-dweller. He may be stronger, he may be a more powerful pit-dweller, and his strength is encouraging, even helpful. Maybe God has been in the pit before so that he can show me the way out. But if God didn't create the pit, he cannot control the pit. If the third possibility is true, then I feel irritated that God put me here, but ultimately I have hoped that he can get me out. If God is the pit creator, then God is the pit controller.
I may not like that fact. I I may not like the fact that he designs pits for his people. I may fight that notion as unfair, much like my child claims that dad is unfair to send her to her room. However, I now have hope. God can remove what God has caused. The sovereignty of God is the only true hope for the person sitting in the pit. His power, God's power, is the start of my answer as I sit in my pit. We must acknowledge the pit as the place of God's choice before healing can begin in our souls. I say acknowledge, not accept, because I do not mean to suggest some spiritual fatalism. To acknowledge means to recognize the authority or claims of someone. We must recognize the authority of God in our pit. We must recognize the claims of God on our lives in the bottom of that pit. Now this is exactly where Israel is in Nehemiah 9 verses 32 to 37. There are three principles I want us to see in their prayer of confession. First of all, when your resources fail you, profess his power. When your resources fail you, profess his power. Verse 32. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness... Do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. This verse begins with God and ends with man. There is a lesson in that pattern of confession. Biblical confession is first a profession of God. It is an affirmation of God's power. We can put our problems in perspective when we start with God, not ourselves. The failures of human leadership demonstrate our need for God's power. The second half of the verse talks about the weakness of human resources. The leaders of the nation had failed them, as we will see in verse 34. The kings, princes, priests, and prophets had all failed the nation in her time of need. And because of those failures, Shalmaneser V, the king of Assyria, had laid siege to Samaria in 722 BC. This was God's judgment upon the nation of Israel for their sins. 136 years later, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah, the prophet, composed the book of Lamentations as he watched the destruction of his beloved city. He acknowledged their sins in Lamentations 4, verses 13 to 18, and he wrote that God punished them through the agency of the Babylonians. Listen to what he wrote. Jeremiah said, The Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. 
He, God, has stretched out a line. He has not restrained his hand from destroying, and he has caused Rampart and the Wall to lament. They have languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. God destroyed the walls. God destroyed the gates of the city that Nehemiah, by God's grace, is now restoring. Human leaders fail. Every human leader will fail you sooner or later, my friends. But when your resources fail you, when those you trust betray you, then you must profess God's power to restore you. It is an act of faith to profess his power in the midst of your broken world. There are five professions about God that the people make in this prayer and that we must make in our pits. Number one, you are great. You are great. The adjective refers to being great in size, power, and importance. Have you ever looked at something through a pair of binoculars, but it was so close that you could not see the whole thing? It was too big? It was larger than the lens could take in at one time. Well, that's the idea behind this expression. God is so big that he is out of proportion to all of our expectations. Because God is so huge, when we try to see God, we get only glimpses of his greatness. Notice the second affirmation. You are mighty. You are mighty. This Hebrew word was used to describe men who were powerful soldiers. David's mighty men were called that because they were great warriors. So God was pictured as a warrior in the Bible. God is no wimp. He is a mighty warrior. Third affirmation. You are awesome. The Hebrew word meant awful, dreadful, or fearful. It was used to describe events such as the day of the Lord in Joel 2.31 as being terrifying. One aspect of God is that he is terrifying to those who rebel against him. He is awesome, meaning that he deserves our fear. After all, who wants a Santa Claus for a god when you're facing the enemy in battle? I want someone who will strike terror in people's hearts, not some warm, cuddly puppy dog of a god when I must face the enemy of my soul in battle. Fourth affirmation. You are faithful. God keeps his promises. He doesn't say one thing and do another. If he tells us in the Bible, lo, I am with you always, then lo, he is with us always. If he says, I will not let you be tempted above what you are able to bear, then he will not let us be tempted above what we can handle with his help. He keeps his word. In a world where even our most trusted leaders fail to keep their word to us, it is reassuring to know that there is one person we can trust as perfectly reliable always, God. Finally, we can profess to God, you are loyal, loyal. 
The last word, translated loving kindness, is a tremendous Hebrew term used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Often it is used in contexts where a covenant is mentioned, which is why some suggest that it means covenant loyalty. God is loyal to those with whom he makes a covenant. The reason that God keeps his promises is that he loves those to whom he makes the promises. That is why I would translate this word loyal love, loyal love. God loves you so he is absolutely loyal to you. God chose to love you, and because he chose to love you, he will be absolutely loyal to you. God has a loyal love for you. The term is used on a human level of David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20. Jonathan loved David so much that he made a promise to David despite his father's hatred. David loved Jonathan so much that when Jonathan died, David grieved, not because he felt obligated to grieve, but because he loved him. This is loyal love. God grieves over our sin, not because he is obligated to grieve, but because he loves us. God keeps his promises to us, not because he feels obligated to do what he said, but because he loves us. That is loyal love. Philosopher John Feinberg devoted his life to explaining the ways of God with men. Yet, when tested in the waiting room, he learned just how faulty was his understanding of God. His wife was diagnosed with Huntington's disease and John Feinberg wrote how angry he became with God. He needed to work through his anger until he came to understand who God really is and how much his false expectations of God contributed to his anger at God. And Feinberg wrote, I understood that much of my anger rested on a misunderstanding of what God should be expected to do. You see, we will never embrace God in love until God corrects our faulty misunderstanding, misunderstandings about his nature and purpose. We enter into a love relationship with God at our conversion with a prenuptial agreement in our minds. Expectations. We expect God to perform in certain ways. As long as we perform in accordance with his expectations, then he will do what we want. But this is not love. This is a business contract. And God must correct the misunderstanding before he can draw us into true love with him, because true love operates only on the foundation of true knowledge. So, when your resources fail you, you profess God's power to love you and care for you. Secondly, in verses 33 to 35, when your sins overtake you, confess his justice. When your sins overtake you, confess his justice. 
God chooses to love us so much that he remains loyal to us no matter how much we fail him. That is incredible loyalty such as we will never find apart from God's great power. Profess it, affirm it, believe it. Then, and only then, can you look at yourself in the right light. Now you are ready to confess that God is just in all he does. Listen to the prayer of the Levites in verses 33 to 35. However, you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonition which you have admonished them. But they, in their own kingdom, with your goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Much that goes under the label of repentance today is not repentance at all. People simply have regrets about their actions or remorse for hurting someone. They feel a pang of emotion. Maybe they are sorry they got caught. Real repentance agrees with God that God is correct in punishing us for what we did. God is just. Repentance is agreeing with God that we deserve his condemnation because at that point we are ready to accept his grace. Notice that the people do not gloss over the reason that they are in this situation, that they're suffering. They could easily blame their parents or their former leaders. After all, the people praying this prayer were not even around at the time God judged the nation. Yet the people know they are not suffering because God has abandoned them. They are not suffering because they made some dumb mistakes. They are not suffering because someone else got them in this mess. They are suffering because God holds them accountable for their own sinfulness. They are sinners just like their parents. So they are suffering because they deserve to suffer. As one writer put it, There is all the difference here between self-pity and self-knowledge. The prayer tells us that God is just in all that has come upon us. The Hebrew term means that God is righteous. He is correct. God has dealt faithfully, they pray. The verb means to do or be true or reliable. God does only what is true. There are no excuses. There are no extenuating circumstances. God is right, and we are wrong. Every one of us is a sinner, and we know it, and every one of us deserves God's justice. Even non-Christians understand that the justice of God is intrinsic to his nature. Thomas Jefferson, who did not believe Jesus Christ was God, wrote these words, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. Now, God had warned the nation of Israel that he would judge them if they disobeyed him in Deuteronomy 28. But the nation still disobeyed him. God was just keeping his word when he judged them. 
It is true for our nation as well. God judges sin in nations, in churches, in individuals, because God is just and right in all he does. Every now and then I run into some well-meaning person who says that he or she believes in a God of love, not a God of law. He or she doesn't believe in a God who judges people. Now, of course, it is irrelevant what kind of God I believe in, since God is who he is, whether I want to believe him or not. I can say that I believe in lions who are loving and friendly, but if I meet a lion who hasn't eaten lunch for a long time, it won't matter much what I believe. I'm lunch. Nice kitty doesn't cut it. The God of the Bible is the God who is, and the God who is is a God of justice. He judges sin. When we repent of our sin, we must be ready to acknowledge that whatever consequences come our way, no matter what, God is correct in all that he does. So we will throw ourselves on his grace and mercy. It is the opposite of what we want to do. When our sins overtake us, our first response is to justify ourselves instead of God. When the consequences of our actions catch up with us and we are miserable about our situation, the first thing that we do is make excuses for our behavior. We can always explain away what we did, but then we will never experience God's grace. The result of rationalizing sin is that we never experience the healing of his restoring grace in our lives. We will only begin to experience God's restoring grace when we confess that he is absolutely correct in whatever consequences we experience. My friends, throw yourselves on his grace. Throw yourselves on his mercy without excuse, without rationalization, that is real confession. Focus on his justice and agree with God that you deserve whatever comes your way as the result of your sin. Then you will begin to experience his peace in your life. Here is the third principle that we see in this prayer. When your troubles distress you, Obey his commands. When your troubles distress you, obey his commands. Listen to the prayer in verses 36 and 37. Behold, we are slaves today, and as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. The people were slaves. What was worse, they were slaves in the very land which God had given to their forefathers. All of the wealth of the land which God had intended for them was now, now going to others who controlled their lives and their livelihoods. 
Verse 37 tells us that the Persians even ruled over their bodies. The Persians commonly drafted young men from the empire into the military, so it is quite likely that many of the young men were fighting and dying in the military campaigns of Persia around the Middle East. They were in great distress. Things were bad, very bad. I'm sure that they hated every minute of this oppressive existence. One writer says, The sorrows of life do not create problems, they reveal them. The troubles they were experiencing were the consequences of choices their forefathers made to disobey God and walk their own way in life. The troubles they currently experience revealed their past failures in technicolor. God had warned them many years earlier to be careful not to forget the Lord, to be careful not to disobey his laws when they enjoy the prosperity of the land God gave to them. God said in Deuteronomy eight thirteen to 14 When your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Prosperity and success breed spiritual amnesia. We forget that all we have is a gift from God. We pursue our plans and take pride in our achievements, forgetting God and all that he has done for us. God gets our attention through some suffering. We repent, but think everything should go back to the way we want it to be. I am often surprised at how casually Christians want God to put back together what they have blown apart. Essentially, we say to God, well, God, bless this mess that I have made. Amen. We have a simplistic view of grace when we treat God as a spiritual problem solver. It was what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. If restoration begins when we take responsibility for our sins, then it continues when we decide to follow his rules for life. Why do we think that God's grace should fix what our disobedience created while we continue in our disobedience? It won't work. If we want to experience God's healing grace, then we must start today to obey God's rules that got us in trouble in the first place. Oswald Chambers wrote, Never try to explain God until you have obeyed God. The only bit of God we understand is the bit we have obeyed. A television news camera crew was on assignment in southern Florida after Hurricane Andrew. In the middle of one scene of great destruction from the hurricane stood one house still on its foundation. So the news reporter went over to talk to the owner. Sir, why is your house the only one still standing? He asked the man. How did you manage to escape the severe damage of the hurricane? 
The man replied, I built this house myself. I also built it according to the Florida State Building Code. I was told that a house built according to code could withstand a hurricane. I did, and it did. I suppose no one else around here followed the code. My friends, think of God's law as the building code for your life. Follow the code and your spiritual life will survive the hurricanes of this world. You say, Okay, Dave, I know that I didn't build my spiritual house according to code, but what do I do now that it's flattened? You do the same thing that you should have done in the first place. You rebuild your spiritual house according to code. If you are in this mess because of disobedience in the first place, doesn't it make sense that you get out of the disobedience by obedience? I don't mean that you work your way to heaven, but neither can you expect to experience God's restoring grace while continuing to live in sin. Rebuild your spiritual house according to God's code and trust his grace to help you do it. I mean, you can't do it apart from his grace. You can't do it by yourself, but with his power you can. God's grace enables you to rebuild the right way, according to code. When I was in the pastorate, one of my joys was to marry young couples. In the course of our premarital counseling, however, I would sometimes discover that the couple were living together, so I would give them a choice. I would say, look, what you are doing is violating what God says you are to do. You are disobeying God. You can either abstain from sex for the next six months or year until the wedding to demonstrate your desire to obey God in this marriage, or you can get married right away. Obedience is the only way to correct disobedience. Don't expect God's blessing on your marriage or in any other aspect of your life while you continue to disobey what God tells you to do. You're not building your house or your marriage according to code. I know that sounds so old-fashioned, my friends, but it's biblical. The problem we have with the Bible is not so much not knowing what to do as it is not doing what we know to do. If you want God to restore you by his grace, start obeying what his grace tells you to do. The Israelites were suffering the oppression that comes from sin. By the time of Nehemiah, they have been suffering this oppression for 140 years. They continue to suffer after this prayer as well. God's grace does not promise to remove all our suffering and make life apple pie and roses. God's grace does restore our souls to him and sustains our lives through the struggles of this world. Restoration is not a state we arrive at, but a daily life we live. We must continually and regularly daily plead with God for his restoring grace. 
Kathy Bartalski sat alone on the Ethiopian hillside looking at the wreckage of her husband's helicopter. Fifteen months earlier, she and her husband Steve had arrived in Ethiopia as missionaries. Her husband, a former Marine captain, was serving as a missionary pilot with Hela Mission. They had a beautiful baby boy named after his father. Life seemed idyllic. Yet God would lead her deep into the pit during those short months in Africa. Kathy suffered bouts of malaria and the death of an adopted son named Colby. Then word came that her husband and a passenger had been killed when his helicopter crashed. The next days were a blur of emotions as she identified Steve's body in the hospital morgue and prepared for the funeral in the foreigner's cemetery on the outskirts of Addis Ababa. Four hundred people attended the funeral, including many Ethiopian government officials and some of the personnel from the United States Embassy. Later, panic overwhelmed her and she felt total desolation as she pondered life without her best friend. Three days after the crash, she and the director of the mission, Ernie Tanner, flew to the crash site to see for themselves what had happened. Now she sat alone under the tree the helicopter had struck in the accident. With billowy white clouds overhead, and the African songbirds singing all around her. Why? Why? God could have changed the situation. God could have protected Steve from this abrupt ending to his life of service. She writes these words. Sitting on the hillside where my husband met the Lord, Peace flooded my soul, and I sang to God. I was no longer singing songs of sacrifice, but of praise. They were songs sung by a heart completely free to trust in God's eternal perspective. The crash site was an end and a beginning. It was a place where I let go of my husband and willingly gave him to my Lord, and it was a place where life once again began to hold meaning. My friends, despair and hope are opposite choices regarding how we see the future when we sit in the pit. Despair projects our present circumstances into the future. Despair looks at the future through the jaundiced eyes of our negative imagination. Despair imagines the future by painting the landscape with the colors of our current situation. Restoration is about hope. Hope imagines the future by seeing God's possibilities for change. Hope turns to God for help. Hope is born in the pit, but lifts us out of the pit. Hope looks to God for His restoring grace in our broken worlds. <laughs> 